Have you heard? The Grim Curriculum is doing our very first live show. That's right. Join us for an evening dedicated to all things Grim. We will be performing at Felice Cafe in Edmonton, Alberta on December 9th. Tickets are available on Eventbrite. The theme is film noir and we encourage you to come dressed in your 1930s to 1940s best. And if all that isn't enough to tempt you, it's for charity, folks. We are donating 100% of ticket sales to Zoe's Animal Rescue. Get your tickets now. I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. It's been a couple of episodes since we've done an old-timey crimey, and today's topic certainly fits that criteria. I am beyond excited for this one. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, we've said this before. She's been on our list since essentially day one, and this story ticks all of my favorite boxes. She's European, she's old-timey, and she is absolutely audacious. Welcome to part one of our Belle Gunness series. Prepare yourselves for one hell of a story because we've never covered anyone quite like her before. Belle Gunness was a Norwegian-born woman who emigrated to America in the late 1800s in search of the one thing she loved the most, money. After the very suspicious deaths of more than one husband, she began taking up ads in Norwegian newspapers that drew male victims looking for love right to her door. She certainly has one of the higher victim counts when it comes to people that we've covered, and honestly, just trust us, you're going to want to hear this story. Our two main sources for this week are, of course, the amazing Harold Schechter book, Hell's Princess. And it is well named, you guys. I love that name. Isn't it amazing? Very dramatic, but honestly, it's on point. I highly recommend this book to anyone who wants a deeper dive into everything Belle Gunness. It is amazing. We also used the Laporte Library archives a lot for this series as well, which is a pretty cool source of original information and newspapers from the time of her crimes. We'd like to start off this series with a poem, The Ballad of Belle Gunness. I gotta say before I start, I love this. <laughs> I feel like it really happens with the lady killers, like our friend Lizzie Borden, who also had a poem about her. It seems to kind of stick to these women. It really does, doesn't it? All right. Belle Gunness was a lady fair in Indiana State. She weighed about 300 pounds, and that is quite some weight. That she was stronger than a man her neighbors did all own. She butchered hogs right easily and did it all alone. But hogs were just a sideline she indulged in now and then. Her favorite occupation was a butchering of men. That just gave me goosebumps, a butchering of men. <laughs> Isn't that something else? I love it. The name of the author of this poem has been lost to time. However, the story of Belle Gunness lives on. All right, let's get into it. Let's. Okay, so there isn't a lot known about the early years of Belle Gunness. This is a very long time ago we're talking about. But we have found that a lot of coverage about her tends to skim over what is known about this time of her life. 
That being said, it's important to piece together what we can about her childhood and her teen years because it really does paint a picture that explains one of her biggest obsessions, money. She was born on November 11th, 1859 under the name Brynhild Paulsdotter Storset. So by Norwegian custom, she was known as Brynhild, daughter of Paul of Storset. We're going to be referring to her as Brynhild for a large portion of this episode. Oh yeah, because she definitely becomes Balganis. Her father, Paul Peterson Storset, and mother, Barrett Olstadter Storset, had numerous children and very little money to raise them with. Because of this, little Brynhild had to work from a very early age, despite being the youngest of the children. Just a small note on the children. Some sources say that they had eight kids. Harold Schechter says that they had seven. And other sources only mention her one sister, Nellie, who we're going to talk about later. I'm guessing that the discrepancy here is because if they did have as many as eight children, the majority of them probably didn't make it to adulthood. Just, I mean, statistically looking at how what the infant mortality rate was at that time, right? Oh, for sure. We can't say exactly how many siblings she had, and you're going to notice this a lot in this story. There's a lot of mystery surrounding her all throughout her life, and the fun thing about all of this is that she's even more mysterious after her death. The family lived in Ingbia, which is a small hamlet in the Selbu area. They leased an acre of land where they raised various animals such as sheep, cows, and goats. They also grew just enough potatoes, barley, and oats to keep the family from starving. Paul seemed to be a hardworking man who did everything he could to keep a roof over his family's heads. During the winter, he worked as a stonemason to keep them afloat. However, times were tough, and on more than one occasion, he had to seek what is now considered public welfare for his family. And we're going to see that's something that's going to affect her for the rest of her life. Very early on, she developed what would be considered an absolute obsession with money and wealth. When you really look at it, she was obsessed with the idea of never being poor again. She grew up during some pretty hard times and was determined to never go through anything like that. The family was so poor that they usually couldn't afford to buy firewood to keep themselves warm. This meant that one of the main responsibilities of little Brynhild was to go into the nearby woods and collect twigs so that they could start a fire. This earned her the nickname Snurkvistpala, which roughly translates to Paul's twig daughter (laughs) from the neighbors, which at first I was like, oh, does that mean that they thought she was skinny? But no, it's just because she picked sticks because they needed them for the fire, which I mean, we don't really need to point this out, but that's really fucking mean to a child. Uh, Right. And I mean, like this poor kid, already she's poor. She has to go into the like scary Norwegian woods to like pick twigs. And that then the grownups are like making fun of her. Not everyone saw her negatively. There are reports from the local pastor, a man named Agaton Hansteed, that tell us that she was a very devout and proper person. He evaluated her and described her as good in religious knowledge and diligence. And I feel like in back in those days, that'd be a pretty good compliment, right? Especially because a lot of these small rural communities would have been very much tied to the church as like a, a part of the community and everything as well. Mm-hmm. She would eventually find work as a dairymaid. Her employer seemed quite fond of her due to her work ethic. Later, when he was asked about her, he reported her as a diligent human being in all ways that are behaved well. 
When she wasn't collecting twigs or learning about the good lord, she spent her free time knitting mittens, caps, and other pieces with the traditional Selbu star rose pattern. Apparently, she was also quite the storyteller, and her family would gather around while she told tales and entertained them. But if it seems like she was well-liked, well, no, she wasn't. The Selbigan newspaper had the following to report. She is remembered by many as a bad human, being capricious and extremely malicious. She had unpretty habits, always in the mood for dirty tricks, talked little, and was a liar already as a child. As a grown-up, she was still little respected and was the scum of society. Yikes. That is scathing! Holy right? cow! Ooh, like, we, I want to point out, this is after her crime, so people obviously weren't happy with her, but like, damn, that is harsh. Especially when considering a lot of the times when they go back and interview people that might have known infamous people as children. You know, I feel like it's kind of 50-50 where either they're like, oh no, they were horrible children, so it makes sense that they were a horrible adult. Or it's, no, they were lovely and we never saw this coming. (laughs) Her behavior began to change around the age of 17. Rumors suggest that she was impregnated by a wealthy landowner who had no intention of marrying her or helping her raise the baby. There are two different versions of this story. In one of them, she confronted the man and he brutally beat her, causing her to lose the baby. And in that story, the man later died suspiciously of arsenic poisoning. In another version of this story, she went to a country dance while pregnant. While there, she was attacked by a different man who kicked her in the abdomen, which caused her to miscarry. The man was never punished due to the fact that he was from a rich family. Apparently, he died not too long after the attack as well. The cause of death was listed as stomach cancer. However, this was never confirmed and many still have their doubts. Whether these stories are fully true or not, they certainly paint quite a picture of her circumstances. Either way, life was not going great for Brynhild. The one thing we haven't really talked about, but we did mention it quickly during the poem about her, but her appearance was unusual. Yes, she was definitely someone who stood out, and I was disappointed. The more I learned here, I'm not going to lie. A lot of sources talk about her being this like massive ass giant woman. And I was Mm -hmm. a little disappointed when I found out she was only 5'9", which is how tall I am. Because like in my eyes, I pictured like six foot four, like built Norwegian giantess. Yeah, 5'9". I mean, back then it could have been considered quite tall, but today's standards, certainly not. Like you say, 5'9 is the same height as you. My sister is 5'9". I'm 5'7", so it's not that far behind. And according, obviously, to our little intro poem, it mentioned that she was around 300 pounds or maybe more. However, accurate sources pin her at around 210. At five foot nine and 200 some pounds, she was probably a fair bit taller and larger than a lot of the people around her. And a lot of people around that time did live in poverty, and yes, they were quite thin. Mind you, we'll see this later. She would essentially be out there working those fields, and she was a tank. I just imagine her really as a tough Norwegian woman, to be honest. Yeah. We would like to share a quote about how people at the time would later recall her. She was a notably unlovely woman with a large head, small eyes, short nose, and a wide, fat-lipped mouth that, when set in a frown, bore resemblance to a frog. 
I guess these people didn't feel the need to hold back at all, hey? Like, damn. Oh, man. The more difficult her life became, the more she dreamed of what else could be out there for her. Cue the American dream. We mentioned that we don't really know much about her siblings other than her sister Nellie, so let's get into her. Nellie, who was born as Olina Paul's daughter Storset, was 10 years older than Brynhild. She had immigrated to the States and was living in Chicago. There, she met and married a man named John Lawson. She then changed her name to Nellie Lawson. When Brynhild was 21 years old, Nellie suggested that she move to Chicago as well. There were more opportunities for work and the potential of a good life than there could ever be for her in Selbu. She really didn't have much going for her there, so she packed her bags for the United States and began her new life as Bella Peterson. The first few years of her life in America were pretty quiet and uneventful. For the most part, she worked as a servant and appeared to be well-liked by her employers. All in all, she seemed to be a hard-working woman. And I mean, she wasn't making a fortune or anything, but she had steady income and she was saving as much of that money as possible. Her sister Nellie would later say, My sister was insane on the subject of money. She would do anything to get it. It didn't take long for Brynhild, now Bella, to meet a man and win his heart. And that's something about her that really gets me. The overall consensus around her was that she, like, sucked. But when it came to single men, she was like a magnet. Which brings us around to husband number one, Mads Sorensen. And I want to point out, she wore all black to their wedding. If that's not a forewarning of things to come, and don't get me wrong, girls, you wear whatever color wedding dress your little heart desires, but knowing what we know about Belle, it does seem like an ominous foreshadow. Right, it really does. Mads was a department store security guard who wanted nothing more than to make Bella his wife and have lots of beautiful Norwegian babies with her. At some point, he got a job working for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, making decent money, but it wasn't enough to give his wife the kind of life that she wanted. Their financial woes caused a lot of tension between the two, but that was nothing compared to Bella not being able to have something else she desperately wanted, a daughter. She was obsessed with the idea of having a little girl, especially after she saw the relationship Nellie had with her four-year-old daughter, Olga. Bella loved her niece and would spend every possible moment with her. She eventually formed a relationship with her that was a lot more maternal than Nellie was okay with. And this is where Bella starts to get a little unhinged. So she goes to Nellie and offers to take care of Olga for six weeks. After some persuasion, Nellie finally gives in. Bella was basically like, listen, you work so hard. I know you're stressed. Let me take her off your hands for a little bit to, you know, lighten your load. Six weeks came and went. Nellie went over to her house to pick up her daughter, and that was when Bella made her a bit of an interesting offer. She essentially said, I want a daughter. You have a daughter. So why don't you just give me your daughter? And we really want to paint you a picture here. Nellie came to pick her up, Bella standing in the doorway, and simply not wanting to hand the kid back over to her mother. I don't have any siblings, but Charlotte, can you imagine if your sister was like, hey, give me Buffy? 
Well, first of all, if I didn't fight her first, Cody would get there before me for sure. <laughs> um, but it's bizarre. And like, if my sister had a child, um, because unlike myself, my sister is planning to have kids one day. Um, I can't imagine just rocking up and being like, yeah, I'm taking your kid for the summer and you're just not going to get them back at the end of it. <laughs> I'm doing it again. I'm going to bring up 90 Day Fiance. Go for it. The guy on 90 Day Fiance and he was dating an older American lady and they went to his brother and were just like, hey, why don't we just adopt your youngest son? And they didn't understand why he was just like, absolutely not. And that reminds me of this. It's like she doesn't get why it's such a hard no. I think obviously these people don't realize what it is to be a parent. And I certainly do not know what it is to be a parent. But this is not a pet. This is not just some luxury item that you get to buy off of someone. This is someone's child. It's, you can't understand why they would be a little upset at this proposition. It's really quite bizarre, but it definitely shows the kind of person that uh, Miss Bella is. Yes, because Nellie obviously said no to this entire proposal. This tarnished the relationship between the two and it would never recover. Bella would get another shot at motherhood not too long after this when a little girl named Jenny entered her life. Jenny was the daughter of a man named Mads Anton Olsen, and we'd like to share a quote from him about what exactly happened. When Jenny was eight months old, her mother was dying. She begged the dying woman to bequeath the child to her. My wife put the baby in Bella's arms and called on her to swear that she would guard the little one as her own, rear and care for her. Bella swore that she would regard the pledge as sacred. My wife died soon afterwards. After Bella took the child, I saw her frequently. She brought Jenny to me often and kept her well-dressed. The child was happy. A few years after the death of his wife, Mads had met another woman and his life had once again become stable enough for him to take care of Jenny. He went to Bella and told her that he wanted his daughter back and she told him to fight her in court. He did and he lost. In 1894, Bella and Mads had saved up enough money to open a small candy store on Grand Avenue and Edward Street in Chicago. They stock their shelves with, of course, candy, as well as newspapers, cigarettes, and grocery staples. Like their own little convenience store. It was located in a pretty busy part of town, which they hoped would give the store the advantage of lots of foot traffic and therefore decent sales. That couldn't have been further from the truth, and before long, the business became a huge money pit. Less than a year after the store opened, tragedy struck once again. Jenny at this point was three years old and would spend her days at the store with Bella. One day, Bella ran out of the store with Jenny in her arms, screaming fire at the top of her lungs. When questioned, Bella said that the cause of the fire was a kerosene lamp tipping over. Upon investigation, no lamp or any evidence of something like that happening was found. The fire was deemed as suspicious and arson was suspected. However, no one was ever charged for the crime. Bella and Mads received a huge insurance payout for their loss. They then sold the store, or whatever was left of it, to the brother of the man they had originally purchased it from. They used that money to purchase a beautiful three-story house on Alma Street in Chicago. Between 1896 and 1898, Mads and Bella added four more children to their family. Carolyn, Myrtle, Axel, and Lucy. I really enjoy the difference in the names from Myrtle to Axel. Like, 
I was thinking the same thing. Like those seem very like old and of the time. And then Axel comes in and all I can think of is Axel Rose. I feel like Axel would have been the cool kid. Oh, I feel like that's the case. And I'm assuming Axel was a boy and then the three others obviously girls. That's right. Okay. I want to point out it's pretty unlikely these were her biological kids. It's pretty possible that most of them, if not all of them, came into their lives through a similar way as Jenny. Sadly, Carolyn passed away in 1896 and Axel died in 1898. The cause of death in both cases was acute colitis. This consists of symptoms such as nausea, fever, lower abdomen pain, and diarrhea. Bella had taken out life insurance policies on her husband as well as all of her children. Both of these deaths came with substantial payouts. On October 1st, 1897, a year before the death of Axel, Karma knocked on Bella's door. I think this is Karma, at least. I mean, she's ripped off quite a few people at this point, potentially in the form of literally taking their children from them. So it's kind of refreshing to see something bad happen to her instead of her doing something bad to other people for once. No kidding. That evening, a man named Angus Ralston showed up at their home. He claimed he had one hell of a proposition for Mads. Angus claimed that he was the chief engineer for the Yukon Mining and Trading Company and that he was in need of good, hard-working men to help in their mines. He claimed that his company was a corporation of great financial resources that had been incorporated with a capital stock of $3.5 million, owned mines in New Mexico, and had great and extensive interest in Alaska and Klondike regions. He said he needed men to go out to Alaska on a year-long contract. They would be paid well on top of one-fourth interest on all mines, as well as 2,800 shares of company stock. Bella was absolutely thrilled at this. Angus explained that the money would be sent straight to Bella at home so she could uphold the house while he was away, and that she would also get some extra money due to the quote-unquote inconvenience of her husband being gone. And as you would expect, this wasn't exactly much of an inconvenience for her. She didn't seem to care for Mads much. This would not only get him out of her hair for a year, but she'd also get a ton of money out of the whole thing. This was a huge deal. He would basically work for a year and then come home filthy rich, according to Angus. And this is Belle's basically dream situation. It really is. The husband leaves and I get rich. That's what she wants. Perfect. Mads accepted the offer and was clear to start work in the following weeks. To prepare for his new job, they purchased him supplies for the trip as well as everything he would need for the year that he was gone. It's reported that they spent $700 on this, which is almost 20 k in today's money. They put their house up as collateral for all of this. And I mean, no risk, no reward, I guess, right? Oh, guys, if you have to put your house up for collateral, the deal is too good to be true. It really is. Like, But you can see, I feel like I wonder how much she cares. She just wanted him gone at this point. I think so. I think she was willing to look past all of the red flags in this particular case. Yep. He got in touch with the company and told them that he was ready to leave. And they never called him back. Two months passed before they finally realized that there was something very, very wrong. Mads and Bella took this to court. The following is from that lawsuit. 
In compliance with said contract, Mads made all preparations at a great sacrifice and expense to himself to go to Alaska and presented himself to said corporation on or about the first day of April, 1898, and informed the officers of said corporation that he was then ready to fulfill his contract and that he would hold himself in readiness to go to Alaska. Their lawyer demanded to see the books from the company, which confirmed their worst fears. Said corporation has not and has not had any interest of any value in any mines in New Mexico, Alaska, or elsewhere. It is absolutely without means, and it has given away large blocks of stock to wit, 520,000 shares. Its officers and promoters are men without means and men who are not financially responsible. It was formed for the sole purpose of defrauding innocent investors and never at any time intended to fulfill its contract. It is now defunct, insolvent, and abeyant with no assets or means to pay its legitimate debts or to continue business. Whew. That would so suck. basically to say they got fucking scammed in a big way. Yep, and they almost lost their house after all of this, but luckily they saved it. For the time being, at least. On April 10th in the year 1900, a fire broke out. The building was saved, but Bella and Mads received a large sum of money due to the fact that the contents of the home were insured. A pattern is beginning to form because tragedy struck once again on July 30th of that year. Mads died of what appeared to be strychnine poisoning. An autopsy was never done due to the fact that at the time of his death, Mads was being treated for an enlarged heart. Bella explained to the doctor that she had given him medicine to make him feel better. And now you might be wondering, did she get another huge insurance payout from his death? And the answer is, she did not, because she received two. So, okay, let's just explain that for a quick second. After the fire, she and Mads had agreed that he would take out a new life insurance policy. And the day that he died was the one day that his old policy and his new policy would overlap, therefore resulting in two insurance payouts. What a crazy coinky ding. Right? Wow. <laughs> what are the odds? I mean, they have to be like billions to one, but here we are. Mm -hmm. With this money, she took her daughters and purchased a home in Laporte, Indiana. And this home had a very fun history of its own. It was originally built in 1846 by one of the founders of Laporte, John Walker. Over the next 28 years, six different people owned that house, including Miss Maddie Altick, who appears to have used the house as a brothel. The house boasted a beautiful carriage house and boat pavilion, both of which suspiciously burnt down shortly after Bella purchased the home. <laughs> Guys, hello? Oh my god, <laughs> where this woman goes, fire follows. Like... No kidding, no kidding. Not only is she a raging black widow, but she's also a raging little arsonist as well. And it's just gonna get worse from here, friends. During this move, Bella became acquainted with a Norwegian widower named Peter Guinness. On April 1st, 1902, the two married, and Bella Peterson would finally become Belle Gunness. And that's where we will pick it up next week. Woo! <laughs>
Oh man, I this lady is just carving a river through America. Oh my god, that is the best description you could have come up with. I love that so much. <laughs> like this bitch is sus as hell. Like I'm shocked that no one by now has been like, hey. Most of the people near her die, and a huge chunk of the buildings that she sets foot in burn down. Like, something's going on here. To be fair, she is moving around a fair bit, so I could see why people are maybe not keeping track of this. But for two fires to break out, that's pretty suspicious. But we're at, like, fire five, six, seven now. <laughs> um, so perhaps... The detectives should be looking at this. I feel like the Pinkertons should be in here somewhere, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. It's honestly, like, I said this, but this is one of my favorite historic true crime stories ever. And I hope you all see why after this episode, but it's only going to get crazier from here. Like, this is this is one of those stories, like, you cannot make this shit up. No, she is a force to be reckoned with for certain. Before we end today's episode, I just want to thank our listener, Johnny, for the Hell's Bell book. It is absolutely amazing, like I said. It's one that I really do recommend reading. Harold Schechter, amazing true crime author. But this book really does paint a picture of what it was like at the time and just the overall reception at the time to, to Bell. When was the last time any of you read a book? I'm sure there's a few of you out there, like me, because I wouldn't be calling you out if I wasn't in the same boat, but it's been a while since I've read a book, so I'm going to have to pick this one up, I think. It's amazing. I will uh, I'll give it to you as soon as I'm done. Charlotte and I talked about this off mic a few times. We're both trying to read more. Yes. And so we're going to be trading true crime books and then doing episodes on those books as time goes on. So we encourage you all to read. We need like a little grim book club or something like that, but like... Reading I mean, is good. TikTok has basically ruined my ability to have any sort of attention span. And I used <laughs> to be a very avid reader. Like I was that kid that was crushing a book a day kind of thing. Me and too. like 400 page books, you know, like oh, I feel like as we get older, sometimes we let that go and we really shouldn't because it keeps you sharp. And so that's how I know this book is good because I haven't been able to put it down. Fantastic. I love a good page turner, especially when it's something as interesting as this. Right. It doesn't get better than Bell Gunness. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Or does it not get worse? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, I suppose we are at that time of the episode where we thank our absolutely wonderful human beings that are our patrons. A huge thank you to our Grim VIPs and up. Thank you so much to Bob, Lisa, Atlantean Jedi, Brian, Hillary, Judy, Kevin, and Mayhem Mudkip. You are all amazing. We appreciate y'all so much. You are the bee's knees, the titty city, the bomb.com. We love ya. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Hey, Charlotte, I've got a fun one for you today. Ooh, I can't wait. Simothoa exquiga, also known as the tongue-eating louse, it's a parasite that latches onto the tongue of a fish and feeds on its blood vessels. And eventually their tongue falls off and the parasite attaches itself to the little tonguey stump and becomes the new tongue of the fish. That is vile and parasitic and I hate it. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.